2 Corinthians 10, page 968 in your pew Bibles, if that's helpful. 1 Corinthians 10, where we'll read the first six verses. Uh, before we begin, I need to issue a correction against myself uh, from last week in a Whimsical moment, I poked at Ray Stedman for writing a Hilaros Christian instead of an Hilaros Christian. One of you very graciously pointed out to me afterwards that Stedman was right, that the choice between a and an before a word that starts with an H is based on whether the H is silence uh, is, 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 is a voiced or silent. And because it is voiced in Hilaros, unless you speak, uh, Eliza Doolittle's Cockney, Hilaros, uh, I say A is correct. Uh, so <clears throat> I want to thank that individual for her very loving correction and, uh, offer you all this morning a very, an humble apology for it. Now, as you're, Turning, please let me warn you that this letter is about to take a turn, an abrupt turn at this point, so abrupt that it has been the occasion of many a scholar's claim that these last chapters of the book don't even really belong to this letter, that they were imported from elsewhere, maybe another letter of Paul's to the Corinthians. Well, we don't disagree that the last four chapters uh, have a significantly different flavor from the first nine in some ways, but it is not difficult to demonstrate that the themes and the topics from the first nine are certainly woven right into the, and and overlap with the, these last uh, chapters as well. And the connection is clearly to be seen. Uh, and why should we wonder if such a long letter as this, that, that Paul should change topics and even tone, uh, depending on the subject and audience he has in mind in this part of the letter or that? James Denny puts it this way. If a man has a long letter to write in which he wishes to speak of a variety of subjects, we may expect variations of tone and more or less looseness of connection. If he has something on his mind which is difficult to speak about, but which cannot be suppressed, we may expect him to keep it to the end and to reintroduce it, perhaps with awkward emphasis. If Paul stopped dictating the day, the, uh, for the day at the end of chapter 9, if he stopped for a few moments in doubt how to proceed to the critical subject he has to handle, the want of connection is sufficiently explained. The tone in which he writes, when we consider the subject, needs no justification. So why all this fuss? What in the world is this subject that precipitates such a change in tone? Well, let's find out for ourselves after we pray. Father, we once again come to you because we're reminded again of our absolute dependence upon you, and particularly when we open your word, the need for uh, that we have for your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and to be ready to be molded and shaped and our thoughts transformed, all of us transformed by the renewing of our minds, which we pray you will do now in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you 
by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, Paul's tongue is buried deep in his cheek as he writes verse 1. In verse 1, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I, I tried to convey that use of irony, even sarcasm to you in my tone as I, as I read it to you now. He's responding here to the false apostles in Corinth and to those among the Corinthian Christians who are prone to follow these interlopers and their criticism of Paul and his ministry, and therefore of Paul's message of the gospel. Hence the change of tone at this particular point in the letter. You who have been following the series closely now know that there were false teachers who had insinuated themselves into the congregation at Corinth after Paul had planted that church so lovingly and laboriously. They whispered against, yes, they, they openly decried Paul's ministry, his message, his apostleship. And it seems like to them any stick would do to beat that dog. We've managed, I think, accurately to deduce some of those criticisms that they've been making as we've made our way through these uh, through this text so far in this series. In fact, here we come to another. This first verse addresses one of those accusations that Paul's critics level against him, and that is two-faced hypocrisy. That's right. They they accuse the Apostle Paul of being a hypocrite for being bold in his letters, but sheepish in person, a paper tiger. The ancient church father and preacher John Chrysostom pointed out that Paul is here ironically echoing the slander which the enemies in Corinth had maliciously invented against him, that they'd been saying uh, that when present, he was mild and timid. But when absent, full of boldness like a craven dog that barks loudly at a safe distance. In modern parlance, we would say that they were calling him a dog whose bark was worse than his bite. As is the case with slanderers, you know this, they were taking a truth here and they were distorting it into an untruth. 
You remember that in an earlier letter, Paul had reminded them that he had come to them with the gospel in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. Paul said it himself. It was true. But his point was that God, God had shown his amazing power through Paul's weakness, through his weak preaching of the crucified Savior. It was true he had not forced himself upon them, but the Spirit had obviously manifested his power in and through Paul's ministry. And so what happened is that Paul's frailty became the foil against which God's power was demonstrated and made all the more amazing. But his detractors, they took Paul's humility and his forbearance and twisted it into a despicable charge of cowardice and impotence when present and therefore hypocritical boldness when he wrote to them from far away. Let's be absolutely clear about this right now. Paul was gentle and Paul was humble and he was meek, both in his physical presence and in his letters. Before his tongue made that shift into his cheek at the end of verse 1, he said at the beginning of verse 1 this, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Even at this point in the letter when things are, as we might say, heating up, he's still imitating his Savior. Yes, he writes with a clear sense of his own God-given authority. I, Paul, myself, is the way he starts. But his spirit and his words are all entreaty, meekness, and gentleness. Even as he wields his apostolic authority to denounce these false apostles who sought to undermine and destroy that very authority and to seduce Paul's spiritual children from the gospel in the process. All pastors need to take a lesson from Paul here. But meekness and gentleness, even the meekness of Christ, does not exclude strength. And even when necessary, severity. Jesus would not break a bruised reed. But when necessary, he was not cherry to assemble a whip and drive the money changers out of the temple or call the Pharisees hypocrites and snakes. He could pronounce, Jesus could, the sternest of woes. We've seen him do this, haven't we, in Matthew 23, and then turn right around and weep for Jerusalem like a hen with its wings extended to her recalcitrant chicks. And Paul goes on with that humble and gentle spirit of entreaty in verse 2. I beg you, he says. Not I command you. I beg you. And what does he beg of them? He begs that they will submit to his letter and repent from their backstabbing attacks against him so that he will not have to, as we say, get up all in their faces when he does arrive there. He doesn't want to have to come on strong 
to, as he writes, show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And with that, he brings us, by the way, to a second accusation that he addresses here. The first was hypocrisy. The second accusation is that Paul was walking according to the flesh. (laughs) Paul was walking according to the flesh? Now, you remember what that means, right? Paul taught us that walking according to the flesh means living not for God, but for self. It means that one's motive is false, that it's not God-centered, it's me-centered. They're accusing Paul of being selfish. They're impugning his very character. That's what they mean by walking according to the flesh. Like Paul was all about himself, making this all about himself, making himself something, whether it was rich or or famous or powerful or whatever. False, false, false. Nothing could be further from the truth. And still, Paul restrains himself. This is amazing. He doesn't lash out at them. He doesn't retaliate. But he does take a page from the judo handbook, doesn't he? It's amazing to watch as he takes the momentum of his opponents and actually uses it against them. Oh, I'm fleshly. He agrees. I am fleshly, he says. Not at all meaning what they mean by it. He means to say, oh, yes, I am human. I am flesh and blood, verse 3. Yes, we walk according to the flesh, but that's not the way we wage war. We walk in the flesh, but we don't wage war according to the flesh. Do you hear the rumblings of distant cannon fire? In that statement, I mean spiritual cannon fire. Paul doesn't want war. Who in his right mind ever does? But if war it must be, then war it shall be. Paul will oblige. We've seen Paul at war plenty of times in the Bible, haven't we? He never wanted war, neither do we. But whether we like it or not, my brothers and sisters, we are at war. The Christian life is war. The kingdom of God is at war. What do you think you meant when you prayed just moments ago, thy kingdom come? That's war language. Onward, Christian soldiers is not a nice song that we sing because it's so interesting. Or lead on, O King Eternal, till life's fierce war shall cease. Like Paul, we are at war. The Christian life is not merely a walk, it is warfare. Look how often he reminds us of this, clothing us in our spiritual armor in Ephesians 6 calling on us to fight the good fight and young pastor Timothy to wage the good warfare and all of us to take up our weapons. He told us earlier in this, even this very letter in chapter six. Dear flock, my brothers and sisters, we are at war, but it is absolutely essential for us to understand the nature of this war. The mistaken understanding, the misunderstandings of the nature of our war has been the occasion of several mishaps in the history of the Christian church. 
When Christians are mistakenly mistaken this warfare of ours for the kind that takes up physical and fleshly swords or spears or guns. One thinks, for example, of the of the Crusades in the Middle Ages. So obviously, a fleshly war for, fought according to the flesh, or all the other fleshly tactics that have been used through the years, manipulation and pressure tactics and so on. So let's take a look uh, for the rest of our time this morning to consider this war, specifically our enemy and the weapons and the objective. First, Christian soldiers, consider the nature of your enemy. This is fundamental to all warfare, isn't it? One must know whom he is fighting in order uh, not to expend a whole lot of energy uh, on foolish uh, pursuits. We can think of plenty of examples recently of Christians going to war against the wrong enemies. We remember, for example, uh, Jerry Falwell taking on a popular comedian for coming out of the closet and starting with his name-calling, Ellen DeGenerate. Or the days when large swaths of the Christian church spent gobs and gobs of resources on organizing a boycott of Walt Disney World. You know, as if the enemy consists of people and and companies and corporations. Today we're want to think of homosexual lobbyists or Muslim people or militant Hindus as the enemies with whom we are at war. Although he doesn't name them specifically in this letter, Paul does tell us to specifically identify our enemies in another. In his letter to the Ephesians, he writes this, for we... Do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yes, I know the people in Corinth, the the false teachers were fleshly enough. That is true. And while we might call them Paul's opponents, and they were, It was not ultimately they against whom Paul was at war. It was the spiritual forces behind their false teachings, behind their accusations, their heterodoxy that rose from the very pit of hell itself. They were were merely the devil's pawns. Yes, they did the attacking just as Uh, Many attack Christians today and ridicule and slander and blaspheme our Savior. But our war is not ultimately with them, is it? It is with the arguments, verse 5, the lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. A few days ago, a brilliant Absolutely brilliant theoretical physicist, cosmetologist, (laughs) maybe it was good at hair, I don't know, Uh, cosmologist and cultural icon uh, Stephen Hawking died. Reflecting on his life, John Stone Street observed Friday that Stephen Hawking didn't stay in his lane. He was a scientist, but in each of his books and nearly all of his 
media appearances, he ventured into philosophy, masking metaphysical observations and proclamations in language of scientific certainty. Hawking regularly opined on what are known as the ultimate questions, such as where did everything come from, and why are we here, and what's the meaning of life, and what are human beings, and what is our ultimate destiny? Here's a sampling from this man who once interestingly proclaimed philosophy dead. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Of course it does. Spontaneous creation, he went on to say, is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. And this, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star, but we can understand the universe. That makes us something very special. Or this one, there is no heaven or afterlife. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. And finally, this one, the scientific account, Hawking said, is complete. Theology is unnecessary. What are those, dear flock? Except lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. That's what those statements are. Literally so, since theology uh, is literally that. The man who said those things, though, Mr. Hawking, is dead. And now he has to give answer to God, in whose face he shook his verbal fist, and who even, according to Paul, sanctified Mr. Hawking in this life through his marriage to his devote, devoted, uh, devout Anglican wife, Jane. Our war was not with Dr. Hawking. It never was. It is with those lofty opinions he raised against the knowledge of God that rise themselves from the pit of hell itself, from the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We Christians didn't rejoice Wednesday at the news of Hawkins' death. If anything, we lamented it. He was never our enemy. He was a captive of our enemy. And sadly, hereever after, he shall remain so. But his lofty opinions continue. And they continue to be the instrument of holding captive the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, to the devil. The enemy with whom we fight is not the dark-skinned, bearded man who lives down the street from us now and whose name is Muhammad. But our enemy is the lie that keeps him in bondage to Allah, waging war against the one true and triune God and the cosmic liar who holds millions captive to that lie that is 
Islam. Or turning our eyes even a little closer to home, there is an enemy within, within the Christian church. The lies, the false doctrines, you name them, Pelagianism, that we're effectively our own saviors, or the prosperity gospel, or universalism even taught in the Christian church in some places, that in the end everyone runs up in heaven anyway, and a thousand other falsehoods that are spread under the banner of Christianity. Our opponents in the camp may be fancy-looking preachers with manicures, slick hairdos, and expensive suits, or apostate professors with lots of postnomial abbreviations. But our enemy is the force behind them and the false doctrines that they preach. And now that we know the nature of our enemy, we can understand, second, the weapons of our warfare. If our enemy were indeed flesh, our weapons would be guns or swords or torture devices or prisons or dungeons. But our enemy is a spiritual one. So our weapons are also spiritual. They are the word of God, prayer, the sacraments. Yes, baptism, the Lord's Supper, where the Christian is drawn to his Savior, where her captain supplies her with the grace needed for the war. Our weapons, verse 4, have divine power to destroy strongholds. But how important must it be for our soldiers, for us to be confident in our weapons? I wonder if that's where we struggle the most, fellow soldiers. We're not as versed in the scripture as as we should be. We've not been sharpening the sword, so we're not as confident as we should to engage in the war of ideas or prayer. Prayer is our secret weapon and powerful for the bringing down and smashing of strongholds of Satan. How often are we using that weapon? How confident are we in it, and how does our use or lack of use of it demonstrate our confidence in that weapon? You know, my father was a police officer for years and years. Each squad car had in the squad car magnetically locked into place a shotgun so that if there was a call to a bank robbery or some other gunfight that called for the use of a shotgun, it was right there at the ready. One day, my dad got in the squad car, sat down after the policeman before him had used it, and found that the policeman before him had placed a flower in the end of the barrel of the shotgun. And it was not unknown for other police officers to spit out their gum, roll it into a little ball, and drop it down the down the barrel of the of the shotgun. How confident do you think my dad was <laughs> in using that gun? Well, uh, not much. He never bothered even taking it out of the mount, knowing that it could, well, had he used it, blown up right in his face. Well, how confident are you in the use of your spiritual weapons? Are you afraid to... Enter the fray of the warfare of ideas for fear that it would blow up in your face? Well, let me ask this of the Christian church at large. 
now of our day and place. How confident are we in our weapons, in our simple but powerful weapons that are the means of grace? The word, sacraments, and prayer. Well, apparently less and less. If we feel the need to displace and replace these things with drama skits and entertaining music and fancy lights and fog machines and, and sermons that are very, uh, winsome with their self-help messages and, and human philosophies and the display of massive organization. Philip Hughes says that not only do such weapons fail to make an impression on the strongholds of Satan, but a secularized church is a church which, having adopted the standards of the world, has ceased to fight and is herself overshadowed by the powers of darkness. See, my friends, only spiritual weapons are divinely powerful for the overthrow of the fortresses of evil. Let's stick with those, shall we? Which brings me to the third point, and that is our objective in this warfare. And dear flock, it is very simple. It is this. To demolish, to destroy, to smash, to reduce, to smithereens the imaginations, the high things, the opinions that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to Christ. Do obedience to him. And the most effective way to do that is to take the weapon of the gospel to the very gates of hell and to do our fighting there. When we take the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom, that as Jesus said from the very beginning of his proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand, that there is one king, the maker of all things, the savior, the Lord that demands the allegiance and the faith and the obedience of all his creatures, particularly who bear his image, whose wrath is fierce, but whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light to whom we must all give answer one day and before whom we all, and I mean all, every human being one day will bow the knee who died on the cross to reconcile us sinners to God. I say when we take that gospel to the very gates of hell, those gates will not prevail. They can't. Yesterday was St. Patrick's Day, as you know fully by now. You might remember that Patricius was not an Irishman. He was, he was born in Britain around 385. His father was a Roman official. When he was 16, barbaric raiders from Ireland took him captive from his bed and left a bloodbath behind. Once back in, once over in Ireland, he was slow, sold into slavery. He spent six lonely years herding sheep all in the outdoor elements of Ireland. 
Google uh, featured a cartoon picture of him on their search engine all day yesterday out smiling in the fields as a very happy sheep was looking on. Not entirely accurate, but at least they got it right in the background, the dark clouds and the rain falling. In a dream, God told Patrick to escape, which he did, making his way across Ireland. It was a, quite an adventure back home and out of the clutches of his brutal captors. But there, back home, he received what we can only compare to Paul's Macedonian call, the vision of Irish people begging him to come back and minister to them. We ask thee, he heard this voice in his vision, we ask thee, boy, come and walk among us once more, he recalls in the confession. Patrick studied for the priesthood in France, and then he made his way back to Ireland. He spent his last 30 years there proclaiming the gospel, baptizing pagan converts, ordaining ministers, founding churches and monasteries. It was a hard battle, an uphill one. Paganism is a force that holds strong its captives, and the response to Patrick sometimes, oftentimes, took the form of beatings, more than once to the very verge of death, and even for, for a time, a return to slavery. But as a result of his ministry, of his gospel ministry, thousands upon thousands upon thousands in that generation in Ireland and multitudes of Irishmen in the following generations were brought into the kingdom of God. We can hardly overstate the worldwide effects still felt today because of Patrick's warfare, his faithfulness in warfare 1,600 years ago. What did he do? He fought. That's what Patrick did. He fought. Whom did he fight? The Druids? No. He fought the principalities and the powers that kept the Druids under their captivity. He demolished strongholds. He reduced to smithereens those imaginations, those reasonings, those opinions and high things that exalted themselves against God. And his weapons were very simple. In fact, they're the same weapons that we have today. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. Those were his weapons. I read one historian who said that his persuasive powers must have been astounding to convert Ireland to Christianity. <laughs> we know better. We know what he shared in common with the Apostle Paul, beside their preference to refer to themselves as sinner. And that is the simple and certain confidence in the weapons of God to prevail, to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. Well, Patrick's war and Paul's war and your war and mine are all the same. The enemy, the mighty weapons, the objective, they all remain the same. This is gospel Warfare, dear soldiers of Christ, and until we join Patrick and Paul and our Savior in paradise, it is ours to fight with might 
and Maine that take the gospel to the very gates of hell, and you know where those gates are, don't you? Everywhere that those false opinions still hold men's hearts captive. That's the gate of hell. You bring the gospel to the gates of hell, and you, because of Christ's power, will prevail. Amen.